Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode, Nick and I sit down with Craig Race, the co-founder of Lanescape, and wait till you hear about these guys. He's also an architect. Lanescape started it back in 2014, trying to organize a set of bylaws that could be implemented to get laneway housing in, approved in Toronto. So what started in 2014, these guys eventually got approved in 2018. So there were, were others involved in this process, obviously, but they were a force behind this. So we brought on Craig to walk us through how that has happened in Toronto and what that means to the city of Toronto when it comes to housing, what type of houses are being built in these laneways, what it means to housing in Toronto as a whole. We get into all of that. Craig knows his stuff. Nick and I, I feel like just sat him down in a chair and then peppered him with questions for an hour and he handled it all. So it's a great episode. We go through it all on, on, on this particular podcast. You're going to learn a ton about laneway housing. We think we're going to be bringing him back again because we have a lot more to ask him and you can find out about Lanescape specifically at this URL. It's lanescape.ca. So if you want to find out what these guys are doing with laneway housing in Toronto, that's where to go to. Craig also has his own architecture firm and you can find out more about Craig and see some of the pictures about some of the cool stuff that he has done at craigrace.com. So that's craigrace.com. We will link to all of this stuff in the show notes of this particular episode. And if you are listening to this and you want to dive into the world of real estate investing, and you're looking for more information, we have a, a monthly introductory real estate investing class where we share all the latest stuff that we're looking at, what we're doing with real estate investors right through the greater Toronto and Golden Horseshoe area, what our thoughts are on interest rates, how we're tackling that, what we're, what we're looking at when it comes to student rental properties or garden suites or legal uh, second suite units, all of that stuff we cover. You can get that information at our introductory real estate investing class and the URL to save a seat for that class is at Canadian Real Estate Training com. That's Canadian real estate training.com. The class is online and Nick and I stick around afterwards to handle all the questions that you might have. So anything that comes to mind, we will tackle everything that comes up at the end of that class. And you can register for that at Canadian real estate training.com. That's enough with this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Craig Race and... Craig is here. Craig, we just have to give Craig kudos for, for coming in here because he walked in here without really knowing what he was walking into. It was Ryan. We have to call out Ryan because it's Ryan Fernandez, correct? My colleague, yeah. Your yeah, colleague. I don't normally leave Toronto city limits. So oh, you're one of those people. Appreciate you guys having me here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you're born in Toronto? Uh, no, but I've lived there for about 20 years at this point. 20 years. Let me guess where you were born. You were born in out west. I'll give you a hint. Hometown of Wayne Gretzky. Oh, really? Brantford, Ontario. No way. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky way in the 403, man. Holy spend smokes. A, spent a bunch of my life in Coburg as well. So, you know, I got the small town roots, but uh, yeah, you no one a... wants to hire me out there. So I got to take what I can take. Yeah, probably because you're charging too much for your services. Your services are so elite. My clients don't say that, but... No, and I didn't mean to imply that your clients said that. I just mean <laughs> that your skills are in such demand that Brantford isn't big enough town to capture you, Craig. So um, we, wanted to, we wanted to dive in because we got introduced to you through Lanescape, and I know you have a bunch of other things on the go as well that we can kind of t talk about. But can you tell us a little bit about 
you know, how did this journey with Lanescape begin and what have you been through with Lanescape? Can you map this out for us? Yeah, Lanescape began as a passion project uh, between myself and uh, originally my two partners, Alex Sharp and Andrew Sabara. Uh, the three of us saw what was happening in Vancouver with their, their laneway policy. And uh, in 2014, we got a one-off laneway suite approved, just going through committee of adjustment, and it was expensive, and it took forever, and you had to be a unique expert to get this kind of housing built in the city. But uh, other cities in Canada were already doing it. So we thought, well, this is stupid. We should have an as-of-right policy that allows homeowners to just go apply for a permit and get one of these if they live on a laneway. Um, what, what was the, so on that first one, before we go further, what was the pushback? Like, why didn't Toronto at that point have laneway as like an approved kind of housing opportunity? You know, Toronto is really lucky in that there's more people trying to do things than they need people to do things. So that means that just inherently our bylaws are behind current demand and, you know, current building forms. Um, so they're just old and there's not a lot of, uh, or there wasn't. Um, a lot of encouraging change coming from City Hall. That has actually shifted quite a lot in the last few years. But just at the time, uh, you know, they had single-family housing policy, and that was it. And uh, we saw a way to crack into that and take what Vancouver and Ottawa and a few other cities were doing and bring it to Toronto. So we got some councillors on board who believed in it as well, and Evergreen uh, was sort of a, another partner who helped us with the policy and the public outreach. And uh, four short years later, we got an as-of-right bylaw implemented that allowed anyone to build one. How, how long ago was Vancouver doing this type of stuff? Uh, around 2008 was when their policy went into effect. Oh, so I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, we yeah. were 10 years behind them. And so did you guys help write the policy that got implemented here in Toronto? Essentially, I mean, our group, like Evergreen and ourselves, wrote a draft policy. Um, that came out of quite a lot of public outreach. Like we had public meetings and surveys and the like. So it was really a grassroots, crowdsourced uh, vision of what a bylaw could be. But then city planning took that and refined it to make it the bylaw we work with today. And so what are the bases of this bylaw? What can people do? What kind of property do you have to have to be able to do something? Well, with a laneway suite, you just have to be on a public laneway. So there are about uh, over 40,000 properties in Toronto um, who, that are on laneways. And that's pretty much it. Then your site dimensions dictate how big it can be. Uh, very recently, uh, they've also approved what they're calling garden suites, which are, if you're not on a laneway, you can put a detached home in your backyard. Uh, same thing, it's fully as of right. You have to follow the prescriptive bylaw. If you have a big backyard, you're gonna have an easier time doing it than if you're on a tight lot. But now anyone in Toronto can build a second home in their backyard. I think the, the province is just announcing what yesterday and today, I guess, the details of, I think they're mandating that across the province now, three units as of right. I don't know all the details, so I, I don't want to go too deep into it. Maybe you do, but I haven't, because I haven't looked at all the details around it. I know officially, I think the square footage can't change and the, the, the facade of the, the, um, uh, the house can't change and that type of thing. So, you know, but, but I, so I don't Did know. Did they say anything about parking? Yeah, it, it, I think around parking, it was that the municipality can't demand more than one spot per unit, 
right? But but some places will already have different rules. Like I'm sure Toronto probably doesn't have that rule because most a lot of houses already don't have parking. Right. Yeah, Toronto's unique. Like we, we already had um, most of our neighborhoods allowed for triplexes, fourplexes, sixplexes, even apartment buildings uh, was encoded into our bylaws. That wasn't quite as true in the periphery, like Scarborough, North York, and Etobicoke, but this policy will allow anywhere to have a triplex now, essentially, which is fantastic news. So what have been, the, it, it, from, from what you know, when you're saying a triplex, you mean a triplex within the existing structure, not taking down, because if it's a small uh, you know, home that's there, an old home, it's not taking that down and building like a three-story kind of you know, small triplex building type structure. Is that correct? Uh, I think that's right. Um, the details aren't finalized yeah, yet. Okay. And with any of these policies, uh, there's always details. Like there's things to get tripped up on. So uh, I guess I'm going to stay in business, even though uh, triplexes will be everywhere now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're going to stay in business. Yeah. Toronto's <laughs> going to need your services for a long time. So what are some of the challenges when someone is doing a lanescape, uh, uh, a laneway housing? Is, is it is it like sewage? Like, what are some of the things that you're like, oh, damn, this is going to be a harder project than we initially imagined? Is it getting some of the sewage lines connected to the street? Because the laneway has no sewage lines, correct? Not talking, about, not talking about water or, or, or electrical. Eh? You're just right down to the shit right away. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, when we built out this office, no, you know, you know what is right under my seat here is the sewage line from the washroom yeah. that goes over there because when we built this out the way it is, so I literally sit on where they cut the concrete in this office. A river of the crap. Sewage line from the three washrooms that we have over here run right under here. There's too much information for you. I'm good to know that wasn't you I was smelling. No, yeah, yeah. That's just a feature of the of the office. But it, it, what are some of the, is it, is, is it that kind of thing? Because I would imagine building the structure itself, not too complicated, correct? So, I mean, this is one of the things about laneway and garden suites where it's expensive, it's hard, there are all these pitfalls, but it's also really cheap and really easy you just have to remember you're building a house. Um, so to get to the root of the question, all services come to your lot wherever they come to currently. Usually your sewer, your water, uh, gas, and electric come to the front lot line. Mm. And from there, it's up to the landlord to take it to the house, into other units in the house, or to the laneway suite. So that's all just servicing solutions you need to come up with on your site. Um, but, you know, it doesn't require any unique uh, applications with any of the utilities. It's just having a decent plumber so, designer. Okay, so most of the time it really is, can we dig an appropriate trench here to pull these to the back to get it to the laneway so we have electrical coming, sewage uh, coming to That's the back? That's right, and sometimes we need sewage ejectors and the like, but there are solutions for all these things. What, what's that? That's like a, a pump to, like, okay. That's right, yeah. So if you don't have... I like downward, sewage ejector, yeah. is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah. oh so if you don't have, like, gravity to take it to the sewer. Uh, there are pumping solutions for everything. And uh, really, these kinds of things aren't unique, at least in Toronto, um, because we're so used to building houses in tight spaces. Most contractors in the city are familiar. They're with familiar with things. that. Okay. And then what are some of the things that have surprised you? Like, what are some of the biggest laneway um, housing that you've seen square footage wise or? So as of right for a laneway suite, you can do 2,400 square feet, including your basement. So you can do two stories above grade plus a basement, um, you know, 1,700 above grade. Like we can do six bedroom laneway suites. That's a nice, fully that's as of right. And you've done that? We've done that. It's all dependent on lot uh, sure. dimensions. 
Um, so only the big lots can accommodate that. But yeah, you can do that. No committee of adjustment, no development charges. Like it's really a user-friendly policy, which was something that we were advocating for when we were coming up with the, the vision for it was this was something that frankly wouldn't appeal to big developers. This was gonna be homeowners, it was gonna be kind of first time investors and people who aren't that seasoned that need to be able to do this in a cost effective and time efficient way. So it's really it's really homeowner friendly. From from when you guys started with this specifically for the laneway suites, um, because the garden suites I think were just approved in Toronto earlier this year. Is that right? That's right. right? We, so, we can't take much credit for that okay. policy, other than uh, you know the the riding the wave of you set the bar that we like to think we kind of started nudging people towards. So okay, so but specifically for the laneway ones, then from when it started until now, have you seen a grow a consistent growth in interest in, in this? You have right, so just more people reaching out. That's right. Yeah, and uh, especially now the garden suites are coming online. Like uh, we don't have the official stats yet, but I think we're at almost 200 building permits a year being approved for laneway and garden suites. Um, in Vancouver, they're at about 500 a year. So it wouldn't surprise me if once this policy hits maturity, we're seeing almost 500 detached secondary houses built in Toronto every year. And that, what? Who? That, that's what's really cool about it. Like the way I like to contextualize that is that's two high-rise apartments just invisibly embedded into our low-rise neighborhoods that are being built by everyday homeowners. So it's really a policy that's enabling everyday people to essentially become a proactive group that are one of the biggest developers in Canada. What about do you do you, uh, in the projects you've worked on? I know it's as of right, but but do you see seem to get pushback? Like, is there some neighbors are kind of concerned about adding those suites and things like that? Is, is it become a not so much a big problem because it, because of the way the bylaw is, it's not going to stop you guys from doing it. But has there been you know some instances where it's just you know for the homeowner that's doing it, it, it it's caused some problems for them? Yeah, I mean, neighbors are neighbors, um, and you always have to be respectful of your site and your neighbors. Otherwise, you know, you'll get into trouble with bylaw officers and the city and your neighbors. Um, and some people are just nasty, like we've all experienced that uh, with yeah. our projects. But for the most part, uh, if you contain your mess nicely, then everyone's pretty. So friendly. that's just over construction. What about what about concerns about like if you put a two story laneway suite, it's blocking light into their backyard yeah. or something? It's so it's typical, like like any development you're getting the same types of challenges just on a smaller scale over exactly yeah. i mean it's just the repercussions of yeah. a growing city so people are worried about it but um, really the policy is written in a way that these are very respectful massings like they're only two stories they can only be a certain size and like the big one i was mentioning like getting to that four to six bedroom you've got to have a huge lot yeah. to accommodate that so it's not like you're putting that in a super tight um, neighborhood in the junction or something. Um, they're very contextually appropriate. What is the most typical size? A, a, a thousand square feet, maybe 1200 square feet. Um, one, one bedroom or two? One? It's not, usually it's only worth doing if you can get a two bedroom a two, out okay. of it, unless you're moving grandma in there and then a one bedroom home office thing is just a good personal use scenario. Yeah, and you mean by that, you mean the rents that the people will get, then the numbers start to work, make, make more yeah, sense. Your yeah, your revenue takes a huge jump at yeah. two bedrooms uh, just to justify the, the inertia of starting a project like that. And is it always t very common to be two-story? Pretty much. I mean, uh, unless you have a really small backyard, and then a one-story might make sense. But for the most part, two stories is achievable. Always a basement? Rarely a basement. Okay, rarely. So just a, a, a slab? 
Uh, yeah, slab on grade. And the reason for that is you almost always have to shore to retain the soil if you're digging a basement, and that's extremely mm. expensive. So adding a basement can cost like a quarter of a million bucks added to your project, and the revenue you get from that bedroom you might get in there doesn't justify it in any kind of short term. I feel like we're just peppering you with questions, but I'm curious. Yeah. What, what's the, coming. Yeah, what's the split between homeowner adding something for in-laws who are going to come back home or live with them versus someone adding a rental property to their space? What percentage do you think that is? About half of our clients are just straight up landlords. Like they want to have a long-term tenant move in. Uh, the other half are split between accommodating a family member or personal use. That grew a lot during COVID. Home offices, mm. you know, man cave. Oh, home that kind office. Of thing has... Uh, has kind of blown up a little bit. Um, have you have, I know a guy that built one for a, to put a gym in his backyard for himself? Oh, really? Like a nice, yeah. Isn't that nice just a garage? Room. No, but no, <laughs> because no, but because of the size and the way it's structured. It's oh, not, got like it. The size can, of it and doors and windows and like yeah, yeah. no. We can split them up too. So like the ground floor can open up to the backyard and be your home gym, you know, TV space, and then have a one bedroom apartment above it. That's mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Anyway. So it, it's really cool to have those multiple uses mixed into them. Well, it changes the dynamics of 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 the property you have in the city. Like if you you know, you're just able to do things now that you wouldn't weren't able to do. With 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 your own lifestyle, with your own mm. with your own property, not just for the, from an investment and income perspective. Yep, right. It changes it. Like like you said, a home office. Some people want to get out there and whatever, do yoga or something. Some people want to do have a gym, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So where is this headed? So that just means more and more. Toronto's just basically becoming a like we were just in Lisbon and walking through the streets of Lisbon, it became very. Uh, obvious to me that all the cafes on literally every corner of block upon block of city just had more density than Toronto had to me <laughs> because it was all four-story buildings. Everybody was in a condo, but not, not tall condos, like four-story kind of condos. Um, whereas Toronto has so much single family in the city proper, in the core of the city, this is just going to increase the density. And I would imagine just increase the amount of, you know, commercial services that are going to be in these cities. It just makes Toronto, um, more global city and maybe a better city. That's a great comparison. I mean, you think of those great uh, historic cities of the world, like those were built before the car. And that's why they're so dense and livable. In North America, we built everything for the car, but now it's changing. Like in Toronto, planning doesn't care if you have parking when you go to committee of adjustment. Like they want a bike rack, but they don't care if you can put a vehicle there. Laneways were built for cars. Now we're putting people on them. Like it's almost like we've come back around to realizing that the livable features of a city are what we have to be investing in, and that's why these suites are so great. It's funny because you know when you come back from a European city and you come back here. Well, I live in Oakville, so you come back to Oakville, you're like, okay, this really is suburban hell. (laughs) This really is because, like, you know, a, a simple example when you're in when you're in Europe walking around cities, you'll be out for the whole day. And, you know, guys, I had a little Adidas. What do you call those things you put? Not, not a fanny pack. I was kind of... They're called my chest. Pack. Okay, fanny pack. <laughs> fanny pack. Fanny pack. <laughs> now they're I don't the, wear it. I don't. The more modern term is belt bag. But yeah, oh, they're, fa- they're fanny okay, packs. Okay, so yeah. I had a fanny cool. pack. I had a fanny pack, but not around my waist, across my chest, just for anybody listening. I don't know. Around the waist <laughs> seemed a little bit off. But around, around my chest, but because I had my sunglasses and you have some cash <laughs> with you and you have maybe even like a battery charger for your whatever... And I was, I was wondering, I'm like, why don't I need this in Toronto? And it's because my car is that. Like, I'm always, I always have my car everywhere I go. So if I have like a baseball hat and a charger, and it's just like always in my car. But in one of these great, to me, European cities, you're out for the day. 
You get along with, the, get around with the subway, like the subway system in Paris. Have you seen the uh, the Paris subway system map? Oh, it's the best. It's like you, it's spaghetti. Yeah. Like you get, you can get anywhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas in Toronto, I know the map has increased now. It almost looks well, like it's really too like it's one well, line. It's a bit, west, yeah. We got north, some light you know, rail stuff, yeah. and it gets up now. It doesn't to count. What do they call the Vaughn area now? That city, uh, I forget. They're calling it like Transit City. I think they're calling it Transit oh, City yeah, up there. Somebody gets all the way up there now. That's that's the four of seven. But you're right. It's you I, get, I lose track because it takes us ten years to build two stops. I, I stop counting. <laughs> I, it's like, it's, Mississauga was hoping to get a stop to Square One when we were kids. Yeah. Like we were talking about the subway. Anyway. Um, (laughs) but this to me is changing Toronto and it seems to me that it's changing it for the better. Although probably the residents would argue against me. I would think a a lot of people would argue that no, Tom, that's, this is, this actually sucks. It's bringing more people into the city, but the way I'm viewing the world, I think we need to go here. I mean, people have different perspectives about what should happen to their neighborhood. Uh, We were talking before we started, like people are moving to Canada, like we're a great country and we have great policies that mean we can't develop the green belt. Like we need that space to ensure the vitality of our region. So that just means we have to intensify. And uh, Toronto has a huge problem, as do most suburbs where our low rise neighborhoods have had stagnant to decreasing populations for decades. So every year, 20,000 people a year move to Toronto. They all move to high rises and the avenues. And our neighborhoods have been deflating in population. That doesn't make any sense. And it's only entrenched homeowners further to resist that change. This kind of policy and multiplexes like the Ford government announced and others are just a good way to take that house form, keep it in the shape that's sensitive and livable, but put more people in it. It just makes sense. Why don't you, early when you when we started, you were talking, you said you don't really leave the city much. And, and, and I'm just curious, why? Is it just because you don't there's you don't have business outside of the city or just no real reason to or any other reasons? And I, I have I mean, a point I, to all this. I'm just curious. I personally leave the city all the time. Oh, okay. Uh, in terms of business, though, we've looked at getting into markets like Hamilton that has a laneway policy now, you know, Guelph, Coburg, Brantford, everywhere has secondary suite policies. From our perspective, we can't scale in those markets. We might get a couple projects a year, but that's not enough for us to template a design process and staff up and train everyone on a different bylaw. You know, we yeah. can do 100 a year in Toronto and not have to worry about Yeah, the that. growth yeah. opportunity in Toronto for these guys is still so big. No, yeah, I thought him, I meant him leaving. And the, the reason I was asking is because when you were talking about everything being designed for the car, it's, it's just a, like with, with as population has increased over the last, not even, let's not say 10 years, just in the last five years, getting into and out of the city at any time of day is a drastically different experience. It's almost not worth it. So if you're able to create these more livable communities mm-hmm. where there are these more of the cafes you were talking about in Europe, if, if you get more density that can support those types of businesses, it makes the whole experience of living in the city just better overall. Right, that's the difference because we we have the flipping 401, which is a nightmare to drive on at the top of the city. We have the gardener at the bottom, and that's it. Like to get into the city, like those are your two options, and they both suck. And there's not there's nothing new that's coming down the pipe, right? So that's why it, it can almost really kind of, in some ways, it's not that it's a dead city by any stretch of the imagination, but it can revitalize the city in ways that it maybe hasn't had the same energy or community in the past, or maybe it did have it in the past, but it's kind of been lost because of the way it's been developed. And also. Yeah, I think it's also strangely healthy for the population because if if we're going to meet up with somebody in Oakville or Mississauga, like just get from Oakville to square one right now, you're not going to meet somebody for a 20 minute coffee. 
because just to get to square one from here is going to be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's happening on the 403, but in kind of a livable city with high density and if everyone are working close to where they're living, you're going to cross paths with, it's like going to London, England, and everyone's kind of having a beer at five o'clock because then they can easily get home on however they're getting home. They live fairly close. Like I know they're suburbs of London, but I mean, Toronto could benefit from that because you cross paths pass with your friends more often. You can cross paths for breakfast. You can have a quick lunch. And it's not just tied to your coworkers. Your friends and family are working all their clothes. I think it just produces healthier personal interactions that are more common instead of planned like, hey, next three Tuesdays from now, we'll meet for lunch at this place. <laughs> it's kind of like a disaster. Well, in a lot of US cities, like uh, the one that stood out to me is I remember the first time I was in Atlanta and I was like, oh, Atlanta, this big city. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And when you go to downtown Atlanta, after the workday's over, the, the city empties out. Like there was, there's yeah. no, there's nothing. Five thirty, it's closed. Yeah, there's like nothing going on in the city, and I, it just surprised me. I was like, wow, I can't, I can't believe this. So like we now you know, you're so, talking about Ottawa too, but I don't want to talk. Well, about Toronto's got a, a leg up on that, you yeah. know, but it can make it even to your point. It just it, it increased the community aspect of it. I think More. that maybe might be a little bit lost. I don't live in the city. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? But I feel like. The, there is the positive benefit to it for sure. Yeah, people are starting to value that, I think. And it's showing up in the way they vote for governments that are implementing triplex mandates. And You like, think so? Yeah. Absolutely. And, the, you know, even your clientele and your network, like these are people who are building businesses around taking our suburban areas and turning them into life-filled, livable communities. So it's something that's happening and uh, it's, it's not going to stop. Uh, when you said garden suites, are you seeing anything that's surprising you with garden suites or is it still so early that it's just kind of what you expected? What the only thing that uh, frustrates me about it, because, you know, in terms of the solution, it's the same, similar, same yeah. typology, same construction solutions, like very similar uh, pro formas as a laneway suite. What frustrates me is the zoning bylaw is not as well written. And my theory on that is that it's because the private sector wasn't involved in its creation. So, it, so it's easier to block? Well, the planning department did a really good job of reaching out to neighborhood associations and really crowdsourcing the idea for garden suites. Um, but for, for laneway suites or garden suites? For garden suites. Okay. They, we, we did for laneway suites yeah. as well, but we were at the table along with the city. Okay, so that, they, the that city that led did to well. an efficient bylaw that okay. is really easy to design to. Garden suites, there was no private sector leadership mm -hmm. at the table. We had weigh-in, but we weren't helping craft the policy. And that's led to a lot of duplicating policies, like different bylaws that overlap and add complication that I don't think has resulted in better forms resulting out of it. Mm -hmm. um, Got it. Yeah, I'd be very surprised that if the government couldn't get something done efficiently and, and you know, the first time. And, I'm, you know, I'm actually, it's, it's really shocking. <laughs> I know you're not knocking them. I'm knocking them. <laughs> so. and, and they do deserve credit. I mean, it was done efficiently and with really good outreach. It's just uh, the perspective that the planning department brings is different than the private sector. And that's why, you know, people who are involved in the implementation of these things need to be active yeah. in the creation. Yeah, you need to combine the theory with the real life implementation to get a proper kind of set of, of guidelines. Yeah. Because if you just do things based on theory, then you don't, you miss the real world side of it. It never really works out, you know. And if you just do it based on like, well, this is going to be the easy way to do it. And there's no kind of, no one cares about neighborhoods and that type of stuff. That, that can be bad too, you know, because there's a lot of people that would just jam 14 garden suites in one backyard. And yeah. right, so yeah, you must feel good. I know there was a group of you, and there was another company or organization there too. Like it was a group, but you must feel mm -hmm. pretty good 
you had a pretty big impact on the city of Toronto with what you've done. Like just personally, that must feel pretty cool. Like Toronto is a oh, yeah. major city and you are impacting the way it's evolving. I am so proud of it. And yeah. I'm, f- I'm depressed by it because I'll never do anything better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> peaked That's the peak. Died. You peaked. <laughs> you peaked. Ah, you're young. You got a few more peaks in you, but, uh, um, I was going to ask, uh, what else, as an architect, you mentioned that you're, you do some other things with your company as an architect as well. Yep. What, what do you do? And I'm curious, uh, as you know, what's your focus there and why? So can you, can you describe that? So, I mean, all the partners at Lanescape, we have side businesses. I have another architecture firm. We all do infill developments where we really put our money where our mouth is when it comes to putting apartments and other kinds of infill housing into Toronto. Um, my other firm uh, goes beyond laneway and garden suites. We focus on multiplexes and neighborhood infill apartment buildings. Um, and that's an area that I think is a new frontier for Toronto. We're starting to see new Main Street development policies and other kinds of infill policies um, come into effect where we can do more aggressive multi-unit buildings and planning supports it. And so can you describe that? Cause I feel surprised to hear that like Toronto, I think of multi-unit when I think of Toronto. So what are you talking about specifically? Can you illustrate something? Well, one of the biggest forms that our clients are asking for these days is a fourplex in the main house and a laneway or garden suite in the back. Uh, Sometimes fiveplex, sixplex, et cetera, in the main house, but the house shape, but more than a triplex, because once you hit five units, you can get commercial financing and it's just allowing our clients to make a jump from that like homeowner space to more of a a commercial uh, investor. So that's something that's, that's blowing up a lot. And in the last two weeks, uh, our office uh, was involved in two apartment projects that were just like two house lots on a main street, but not on an avenue that our client merged and got almost 30 units approved on. Oh, wow. So those kinds of things were unheard of 10 years ago, even five years ago. Because they just couldn't get it approved at the city. There was resistance from the committees that you have to go through to get approval. Counselors didn't like them. Neighbors were voraciously opposed to them. Like everyone was opposed to it. But we're seeing a tide change where uh, leadership in the city is trying to embrace it. Developers are seeing potential with it and homeowners are split. Yeah, <laughs> those yeah. That, that, those 30 units, How what kind of building is it? A, five, a five, five story apartment building. Yeah, okay. Five-story apartment building. And I think that's what we're going to say. You know, we've kind of looked at that too. And we just, that seems to be the missing gap in, in Toronto. We don't, nothing, not everything has to go high rise all the time, but yep. we can, they can increase the density at a, at a, you know, a normal rate with some of these types of projects that, that Toronto really has a lack of compared to other cities with the similar population and popul- that when, when the population was growing, they kind of implemented a lot of these things and had some of these solutions where we've really, um, you would know better than I do, but you know, there's just a lot of a lot of areas like in the yellow belt that they call the yellow belt is really just single family or you go to the core and it's high rise mm-hmm. and and there's just v- you know very few of these areas where you do get these three four five story buildings you know there are like on western road there's a strip and that type of stuff but overall they're just harder to get and i think that's going to be a growing area for sure i would imagine exactly we we've had a tall and sprawl situation for a long time yeah okay i didn't hear that and term that's uh, good yeah you know i mean everyone's talking about the missing middle in toronto these days and even council um, has been putting forward efforts. They call them the EHAN efforts, the uh, enhancing housing options in neighborhoods where they're writing policies to allow this kind of thing. And what's exciting to me about that is before you could build a house or you could build a high rise, 
it's hard to make the jump. Now we've got, you know, you can start developing houses and laneway suites and then do multiplexes and then do small apartment buildings and then mid-rise buildings. So like I'm working with clients who I wouldn't be surprised if when I retire, they're building high rises because they can slowly grow and stay in the same city. What, um, if if this is, sorry to cut you off, but if this approach because uh, now that so many stakeholders are talking about it and from a government level, they've changed their tune a little bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, the population challenges and, and the lack of kind of just housing options in the city was has been ongoing for probably at least a decade. And really over the last probably, what, two, three years, people have gotten serious about talking about it. Yep. But if this is done right, I, I just really look at it as an opportunity for Toronto. I think it can be really cool. I really think it can change the dynamics of the city and a lot of areas that are a little bit kind of not in favor now go through some gentr- gentr- gentrification with this process. Um, it could it can be really cool. Like when Mike and Luke were talking about at, at the event, they're doing some things um, in the Scarborough area, which is, you know, for a long time, people are like, oh, let's just stay away from that, that area. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of redevelop some of these areas properly, it can, it can lead to just more diverse, dynamic, kind of lively neighborhoods, which I think would be really, really cool. If done poorly, it can go to crap really quick too. But it seems like there's thought being put into it at least. So, but if they push it too fast, it can, it might get squirrely, right? Yeah. And, you know, the waves are crashing. So what's happening in Toronto is starting to expand to the secondary markets and really across the whole greater golden horseshoe. So like we were talking about the Hamilton laneway suite policy, like all these other smaller towns that now have detached housing policies. It's only a matter of time before they started uh, leaning into multiplexes, whether that's (laughs) because they're being forced by the Doug Ford government or if they're doing it willingly. But either way, it's going to expand and we're just going to see it change our province. What kind of lot is it that someone can do a a sixplex on? With a laneway on the, okay, laneway on the back, obviously you need the laneway, but what size of lot am I looking at here? I mean, you know, depends on how small you want your units to be. We've done them on lots that are 15 feet wide and 120 feet deep. Wow. And obviously the bigger you go, you start to get... What's what's comfortable for you? You've really built a Maltese on on things that are 15 feet wide? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's easy. I don't yeah. want to say, you know, that's tight. I don't want to say his last name, but you know, Mike in uh, Toronto, when he built his house, yeah. it, like that lot was like 18 wide. No, I know. I, and I know there are some really tight lots there. I, I just didn't know for that type of structure, yeah. you know, well, sometimes it, I've walked by a house and I'm like, I just want to like measure this with my feet. How wide is this <laughs> lot? Because the, some of them you just look at from the outside. I'm like, this is narrow boy. Yeah. Coming from, especially when you're used to the suburbs and that's such a long, you know, for a long period of time. Right. It takes good design. Uh, that's that's something I, I really see the difference between uh, me and my competitors who are successful at executing multiplexes and the ones who aren't are the ones who know how to do direct entrances from the street, no secondary exits, no elevators. Like your uh, net assignable ratios just go through the floor as soon as you need a second exit on a unit. So you really have to be clever about how you design them to make sure that a, you get rentable space out of that relatively tight volume, and B, you don't have those maintenance and operating costs on a building that you've only got four units in. Mm-hmm. And then the one you made uh, for a five level that you mentioned earlier, that requires an elevator? Yeah, once you get really up to like four stories and more, you kind of have to have an elevator. 
Um, so that's when things change a little bit. Got it. You kind of have to, or you have to, I mean, there are always solutions to do weird stacks, okay. four story, oh, but it. it gets kind of, gets kind of dumb at a certain point. It's hard to market like a, a super narrow stacked unit. Yeah. Um, it, for accessibility, wouldn't you have to, like, when does that come into play? Cause I know just even for our office here, there's, you know, one of our bathrooms is, you could fit a three. Ba- yeah, you could yeah. fit three bathrooms in there. Just, yeah, commer- just commercial's a little different. And once you hit a certain number of units, you do have to have barrier-free provisions. Okay. But um, as long as you're just in the the multiplex scenario, you can usually avoid that. And then, as an architect, I can imagine that you have a vision for what how you would think the city should evolve. And it sounds like you're pretty positive on some of these changes. But what else comes to mind for you? Just when you look at Toronto, and you're like, why aren't we doing this? Well, I mean, for me, it's sustainability. Like I, I went on my own projects. I really invest in a good building envelope. Um, not necessarily because I want to save the world, although that's nice to do, but because, you know, it lowers your M&O and the comfort is really the big difference. Like in our custom homes where people are spending a lot of money on airtight, well-insulated envelopes, you can feel how comfortable it is in the winter. I think as energy prices continue to increase and we go to a more carbon-free energy system, you're going to see that become a bigger priority. Um, how are you, so how are you building the envelope of the houses in that type of description? What's different? So you're the not- trick is air tightness, really. Our building code is pretty good in terms of the amount of R value you need in a wall, your insulation value, and also the fact that we have to have continuous insulation, not just um, thermally broken insulation between the studs. Um, but if you just do code minimum insulation and then actually focus on airtight construction, doing a blower door test that gets a decent score, like your heating loads drop 30 to 40%. And that's where that comfort really starts to be felt by the occupants. What's some of the material to get the airtightness? I don't, I don't, we grew up in old construction where it was like, you (laughs) know, put some insulation, put some vapor barrier, throw some drywall on this thing. I mean, it starts with detailing, like having expansive attics and big overhangs usually makes it hard to get an airtight wrap around the occupiable space. Um, but then also it's, you know, just having trades who know how to apply tapes and sealants in a way that is actually going to have an effect on a blower door test. And when you're saying it's more comfortable, you just mean the temperature inside the house isn't raising and dropping. It's just staying very steady. You're using less energy to maintain it and it's staying very even. So I'm getting a nice comfort feel from the house. Something that's really hard to understand until you felt it. Like I, I, I try to explain it to people and it's just impossible. Like you got to come stand in my house, um, ideally naked, but we'll become better friends before that happens. <laughs> and go stand beside the window and like you won't feel a draft off the window and the inside surface temperature of your walls is above uh, you know, 18 degrees. So you don't feel any radiant cold from it. It's really hard to describe, but the, once the, you've lived it, you never go back. The, huh. the one thing, uh, so when we refinished our basement last year, a couple of years ago, we did spray foam insulation everywhere. I'm like, so it really makes that much of a difference. Right. And, and especially in the basement, cause they get in all the, all the joists and around all the kind of pipes and everything. And I swear in the winter, the basement might be warmer than the main floor. Mm-hmm. Because the way it's insulated, and what happens is because the furnace through the vents, not not be like I close most of the vents in the basement, but because the vents, like just from the furnace room, get heat up, it will heat up the rest of the basement, and it just maintains the heat so well. That Even the floor, 
Yeah, well, yeah, we we raised the floor, so we did put a subfloor. But yeah, it's 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 weird. Like we can comfortably go down in the basement in the middle of the winter with not much heat going on, and just you could be in just a t-shirt and be. Comfortable. Well, and that, that's a big knock-on effect. When you have a good envelope, your HVAC system has to be designed for that. Otherwise, you get overheating and things. Which is yeah. So that's so ours wasn't designed for it because then in the winter. So here's the, the flip side to it. In the summer, our basement is like abnormally cold because it just it, it holds all the cold already the basement's cold when the air conditioning's running because it holds it so much in the summer I'm like it's flipping freezing down here yeah it's like too much <laughs> got it what, so Craig in your description what kind of windows are you talking about here that will, are going to give you that type of air quality I mean in our custom homes we use like imported from Europe triple pane okay passive house certified windows doors but, too imported from Europe I mean it's nice if you can do that that's, yeah. that's where you're really talking like super because anyone Anyone listening, Super. we 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 uh, the doors on my house right now are from Germany, and when these things arrived, I'm like the construction on these things. Oh, they're like cool. a bank vault. First yeah. of all, they're like a bank vault. They seal beautifully, and they just feel like they're going to last a million years. Oh yeah, didn't a police officer? Weren't they kind of in your home for something? Something happened in the area, and they wanted a video, and they said something about your doors. I thought yeah, I think you're like, right. They said yeah, you have no problem with these things. No, I'm definitely no, biased no towards Europe. As soon as I hear like imported from Europe or imported from Germany or something, I'm like, oh, quality. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that. I don't know why. And I think it's because of some of the things that uh, the, the place we have in, in, in Croatia there, just the windows and doors and like the oh, first time the, I experienced like the, the build quality of those ones compared wow. to what we typically have here. I'm like, what the heck? The door we have on our condo in Croatia literally has, uh, they must be an inch thick, like metal cylinders that come out in probably six spots yeah. on the door, like maybe eight spots. So when you lock the door, you lock it one way, but then if you crank the handle up, those cylinders are like two, I think it might be eight. It's like two up, two down yeah. and four on the side. Oh, yeah, like no like nobody is. And then it's cement all around this door. Mm-hmm. Like no one is getting through that door. Like you lock that door and it's done. I and I would imagine the air quality, the way it seals too. No air is going yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that also pulls it against the seals, right? When you, yeah, exactly. When you do that, yeah, yeah. so it makes it even more. Airtight. Whereas here, from the builder, if you go to the top, I, I didn't know this, but someone, the the, the guy that gave uh, one of Dan's guys came when I did redid my front doors. He's like, "Look, look at the builder doors," and he pushed in the top corner. It was the best sales pitch ever because he just pushed in the top corner of the door, and it literally just bends in, like not hard. <laughs> yeah, it's like a quarter, and it bends yeah. in. I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Well, I mean, so, we invest in quantity in North America, yeah. not quality, and that's also starting to change. Like especially in Toronto, where you can only get so much space on your lot eventually you've maxed it out and you can start spending money on sweet speaker systems and triple pane yeah. windows and th- those quality things. Uh, Craig, you described the inside of the house, like what you like as an architect to see. What about the exterior appeal of a city or what you see? I notice a lot of your stuff has to me what I would call a modern look. Maybe that's too simple for yeah. what you're describing, but it, what what do you think a city should look like from the exterior with all these changes in what we're building? Well, I mean, obviously design is subjective. I lean towards the modern to aggressively contemporary temporary uh, design aesthetic. Um, but the, the reason I have for that is because to achieve a good building envelope, you know, brick doesn't make sense anymore. Brick needs a big either steel or concrete lintel to sit on, and that means thermal bridging through your wall. Um, it's super expensive, and we just don't need it. Like, we have insulation and structure behind the brick. Hung cladding is the way to go, whether it's wood or metal or even stucco solutions. Stucco, does stucco hold up in Canadian winters? Uh, depends on the spec, but it can, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. 
We've uh, that's one thing I always wondered when I see people restucco some a part of their house or the whole thing. I've always wondered, I'm like, isn't that thing that's just going to get destroyed with all the thaw- freezing and thawing? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's rationale behind what you would call a modern house that just makes functional sense for construction and operation, which is why our work is modern. I mean, the zoning bylaws in Toronto for a laneway suite require a flat roof pretty much. So we're just doing boxes and it's hard to make a box look like a traditional home. And it wouldn't make sense to from like a, a wall assembly and a construction perspective. So we lean into modern design and there's a reason for it. Yeah, your stuff looks beautiful. So does that mean we're going to see more and more prefabbed built like in a factory driven on site and assembled on site as a model of construction here in Toronto? Oh, definitely. I mean, prefabbers are popping up all over Ontario. Um, there's a few we work with on laneway suites. It's usually a challenge. It's usually not worth it because you've got a three meter wide laneway with two 90 degree turns. So getting a Mm, truck mm. to the site. um, Oh, so you're talking about the whole structure is prefabbed. I was talking about panels that you would assemble. Well, That's what I mean. Oh, okay. The the biggest panel you can fit down a laneway is usually pretty small. And that leads to a lot of redundancies in structure and difficulty in assembling. So it costs you more. It maybe saves a little bit of time, but uh, you know, it's just not worth it in most cases on those super tight lots. I know this will vary greatly. I'm ju- and I'm, I'm just curious, what's the cost of a laneway suite that the, an average, what did you say the, the most popular one is about a thousand or 1200 square feet or something like that? Or yep. so, so like, are you 150, 200 to 250? Like what? Oh, just, more than that. What, oh, yeah. What's frustrating is if you'd asked me this question prior to COVID-19, oh, yeah. I would have said like three to $500,000 is your development budget, like all in soft sand hards and contingencies and taxes. Now it's like half a million plus for any laneway suite, no matter how small. Um, materials are crazy. Construction costs are through the roof. Yeah. Um, so fortunately, the soft costs haven't changed much. Uh, design fees are still, I think, relatively unchanged. Um, there's no development charges on these. So it's all construction related. Hopefully that'll rebound. Do you know what I, I haven't looked into? And laneway suites have been around longer. And we've been talking about this specifically with garden suites because of the, some of the areas that we're in, we're, we're just seeing the growth of garden suites now. And I'm just curious of what kind of price lift or value lift to that lot that extra suite's gonna, going to... Um, so, you know, you're putting 500 for the extra suite. I'm not... Maybe you don't get the all 500 back in the price lift. Maybe it's 400, maybe it's 300, maybe it's 600. I don't know. I think until the banks step up, you're not getting much. I know, but that's... that's the magic question. Yeah. And that's the question most people don't ask. Like, a lot of us say, how much is it? Half a million bucks for a little laneway suite? No way. It's like, well... Well, that a, that'll rent for four thousand dollars a month, like you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The number, the, the number on revenue the, can carry it in almost all cases, and also just when you look at construction costs, if you go buy a condo of equivalent square footage, it costs twice as much as building a laneway suite. So yeah, that's a good point. I don't think I've ever thought of it like that, especially with Toronto numbers. The way it, of well, that. Toronto numbers, if you're you're really a new house, you have two homes instead of one. It's the way I like to characterize laneway and garden suites to people in Toronto is that it's the best investment you can possibly make in Toronto real estate, but you still have to be comfortable investing in Toronto real estate. Mm-hmm. So as long as you've overcome that barrier, you'll never get a better deal than one of these. Yeah, because if you're going to spend 500 grand on a condo or 500 grand on one of these, it, like you already own the land instead of buying, I, I would, you know, I, I'd have to do the numbers, but it seems like it makes more sense. When the right? banks catch up and finance these things and look at a property with an extra 
building on it and then kind of value the property differently, that's going to open up more development for you for sure in the city. Because right now I feel like the banks are trailing. Like you bring uh, somebody a property like this and they're just kind of shrugging their shoulders. They're not really valuing it too much different. And because it's not a straight income property, like they, like they kind of define them, they're not looking at the revenue that it's bringing in either. So you're right. But if you think about it, if you do this, so you have this property, you've spent 500 grand that gives you, let's call it, let's call it 4,000 bucks a month. So it's about 10% of what you spend. So you get 10% of your money back every year. That alone is kind of attractive from an investment return, just that. And then if you're, if someone's buying the home with a $4,000 stream of income, potentially, there's got to be some and a, a structure. There's got to be value associated with that. And, yeah. I, and once they catch up, it's That's what's going to be the most interesting thing. Cause, yeah. cause that, gives the possibility of it really just looking like, you know, or at least early on being like, wow, there's a real opportunity here to yeah. kind of... And there is a gap there right now. Yeah. Like our, our clients who have success with these are savvy in, you know, getting the rental agreements in place first and then just relying on the income to refi. Flipping doesn't make sense for laneway suites right now or garden suites. Like, but we have no idea what the equity appreciation is going to be because none of them have gone to market. So and your clients yeah, why would you? Yeah. If you've built one like that, just keep that sucker forever, man. Yeah, so it's impossible to really know what someone's willing to pay for it. Yeah, and the majority are, are investors of your clients. I know there's some homeowners, yeah. but the major, what, what would the split be, you think, of investors? We just asked that half question. And half. Yeah. Oh, did you say uh, I missed that? I tuned out. Yeah. yeah you... and, it, and of that, like, the majority of our clients are all people who live in the main house. Like, I would say maybe a quarter of our clients are just straight up investors who have like they bought a, a property and they want to slap a laneway suite on it most live there or want to live in the laneway suite or are somehow personally associated with the property but i guess all the regular cra rules apply like if you're taking money out of your home for to build a income property just because it's on your own property I guess that's all still tax deductible from a CRA point of view. Because if you bought a rental property, that's an investment. So the you can cost write it down. Yeah, there's HST rebate programs, the whole thing. Okay, yeah, it's a new structure. Yeah. For you. So what about de- and then development charges in Toronto? Can you comment on? Is that what, they what, don't apply to laneway suites? So nothing applies to laneway suites. But if you're building a, I guess if you're building what you described before. It does. If you're taking two lots, putting them together, you still have development. Yeah, charges. so Toronto's enacted some changes recently to the DC bylaw where you can do four units in the main house and a laneway or garden suite and essentially pay no development charges. Um, it's still changing, but that's the gist of it. When you get above that, uh, you are paying DCs. And certainly if you're talking about like a, a 20 or 30 unit mm-hmm. apartment building, you're paying DCs on that. Wow, that's a lot of changes in Toronto. This seems and 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 like and like Craig, you know your stuff, man. Because I I feel like normally we have we've just yeah. been peppering you with questions, yeah. For, yeah. and nobody has the answer. Not as dumb yeah. as I look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little surprising. You know, I, I Brantford, I, Ontario, I, apparently <laughs> produces some smart people. <laughs> but uh, so so, Craig, if people are going to engage with you on a laneway housing, is it just going to the like? What's the pro? What does that process look like? Just from a timeline point of view, so like they hit your website and they reach out to you. What what is it? Where does it go from that? From so there? step one is send us your address. Like what? Even if it's a listing you're looking at, we provide free uh, property assessments to anyone who wants them. So we've done like thousands of them in Toronto, Toronto proper. Has to be in the city of Toronto. Okay, laneway and garden suites. Just send us the address, and we try to turn around a property report in about 24 hours. It's basic, but it gives you the gist of how big you can build, any potential pitfalls to look out for, some sample floor plans. Oh, wow. You know, it's a free service we provide that hopefully, like, really our goal is to educate the public and be a free resource to help 
developers and homeowners avoid <laughs> being taken for a ride by other people who don't know what they're talking about. But also, um, if you want to hire us, like we can explain next steps on just hiring us to be your architect. Like we're a fee for service business. We get your design and approvals and then you can go find a builder and construct it. We're actually launching a construction company that hopefully will start building our own. Uh, that one seems so, like it would make sense. And you know, we have a lot of great builders who our clients love working with, but like our goal is to do a hundred designs and approvals a year. Like there aren't enough builders to fulfill that demand. So we just have to do it in order to keep constructing these things. Oh, wow. That's going to aid you quickly. But thanks for being of service to the city. We really appreciate it. And to the population. Are you going to manage the property? Are you going to manage the suites for people afterwards as I well? I mean, you know, we have high aspirations. We'd love to do management, develop them ourselves. Like, the sky's the limit on this. Like, oh. we're all in on neighborhood development in Toronto. And, uh, you know, we want our clients to be too. Oh, that's pretty exciting. Awesome. Is, yeah. good, good for you guys. And then what? how would someone, um, timelines, I know with COVID and supply chains, but now supply chains are a bit better, but energy, <laughs> it's a wild world. But if, if you were to ballpark it for someone, yeah. to, you know, they reach out to you until it's actually completed. What are, what are they looking if at? If you've got your stuff together, like from the day you reach out to us to the day you get the keys to your laneway suite is a year. Um, most of our clients take a year and a half. It's like six months for approvals, four months if you move fast, and then um, between six months and a year for the construction. Mm -hmm. Wow, you're going to see all kinds of wonderful things because if people are doing cool garages with a lane, like a, a suite over it, I mean, some of the stuff that you're going to see over the next few years is going to be incredible. This is, I think for Toronto, this is exciting stuff. This is probably the most positive I've heard on Toronto's development and housing needs in like the years we've been doing this. Mm -hmm. no? Well, I mean, we were talking before we started, you know, everyone was going to secondary markets before because mm -hmm. it was way cheaper to buy and revenue was not that much lower. Like now that's changing, I think, like the DC changes and just the fact that Brings houses in, in Collingwood cost more than Toronto now is going to bring people back to the Don't city. make fun of Collingwood. We just bought there. We don't, I, you know. I go there almost no, every I'm day. I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Collingwood. <laughs> it is ridiculous. He walked back that, that pretty quick. All right, Greg, we're on I'm board. Not, I'm not knocking it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Toronto is suddenly becoming a Totally. It makes sense. And I, th and I think I'm just going to bring it back to the financing. As soon as some bank, some bank at some point is going to say, hey, we will finance these builds. Well, and what other city do you have $3 million comps for a multiplex? Only in Toronto. Need an appraiser to put that in a report. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is going to change. It's interesting times. Toronto's got a bright future. I'm well, positive on Toronto again. I'm positive on Toronto again. Craig, you've changed our thinking on Toronto. Well, let's get, let's get a coffee in a laneway one day, and we'll uh, talk about the future for our clients. Yeah, yeah, totally. I appreciate you. Oh, and then for your other, you've, you've talked about kind of lanescape, but your other, if someone was interested in saying, hey, I do want to get like two lots and build something in Toronto, they reach out to you differently for that one? Yeah, so my other firm is just called Craig Race Architecture. That's Craig Race Architecture. Yeah. So if you Google up Craig Race Architecture, the website for that is? CraigRace.com. Come. Okay. Cool. With Lanescape, we have a, a team set up, so uh, that's that's very systematized. My other firm that does multiplexes and apartments and custom homes, that's more boutique, and you're just working with me directly on that one. So uh, hopefully we'll get along well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, I'm sure. You seem like a great guy. <laughs> and uh, um, is anything? are we not asking anything that we should be asking in this regard, in this area? I mean, uh, you know, it's, I think we covered a lot. Yeah. It's exciting. Like Toronto's exciting. Uh, people are right to be scared of it and to, to love Hamilton and 
mm -hmm. other markets, but I think it's changing. So uh, it never hurts to get a free property report and see what's possible. Well, I think it supports the whole area. Like if Toronto improves its housing, I think it acts as a pillar for the whole Golden Horseshoe. Like this is a positive for everyone because I think for a while, uh, to me, I felt like people are escaping Toronto and that like nothing's getting done, no new development, no hope. There's just going to be another condo around the Sky Dome or the Rogers Center or whatever it's called. And uh, that's it. So this is kind of like encouraging for the city, for me anyway. I feel like there's it's bringing, it's bringing some excitement back to Toronto. I agree. I feel like what you said has has a lot of merit as well. Like I think, you know, when the price gap in some other areas were greatly different than the price than the price in Toronto, so you could buy and generate, you know, uh, relative to price, uh, just a decent amount of income mm. compared to Toronto. So the cash flow numbers and things like that were better in some other in a lot of other areas, and maybe they are still in, in some other areas. But you know, Toronto, the vacant like you're not in Toronto, and a lot of the real estate world really revolves around the city, whether you, whether people like it or not. It, it, that's the way it works. So mm. it's almost like the the condo and uh, uh, like the high-rise, low-rise pricing in Toronto. Like as when when the high-rise, there's too much of a premium on a low-rise compared to the high-rise. Generally, you see that kind of correct, and, and you see the market in low-rise really slow down, and the market in high-rise pick up, and prices kind of will increase, or, or that that gap closes again. And when it gets too close, people are like, "Well, why am I going to buy high-rise for just this much more? If I can, I can buy low-rise." And you kind of see that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're at this point where, with especially maybe COVID sped it up, that price increases in all these other areas have look, made some people look like, well, if I'm going to spend six, seven hundred thousand over here, maybe I just spend a couple extra hundred thousand and I look at Toronto as an option instead now versus it's five, five hundred thousand extra, whatever the number was before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Craig, thank you so much for doing this. And a shout out to your colleague there, Ryan, who I think listens to the po I, I He listens to the podcast, I think, and Ryan, he reached Ryan out. Listens, yeah. yeah. So he's, thank he's you, Ryan. You guys. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Get well soon. He's sick at home, unfortunately, but we'll He'll get be, him back. At yeah, the yeah, yeah. Cool. Craig, thank you so much. Really appreciate this. Thanks, thank guys. You. Appreciate thank it. You. Hey, oh, hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode with Craig. You can learn more about Lanescape at lanescape.ca, and you can find Craig at craigrace.com. So you can get through to him at Lanescape website, lanescape.ca, or you can find more about Craig at craigrace.com. And if you are listening to this and you want to get into the world of real estate investing, you're not sure where to start, you can learn more what, about what we are doing with real estate investors by coming to the next introductory real estate training class. You can save a seat for that by visiting canadianrealestatetraining.com. That's canadianrealestatetraining.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.